This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. You are now listening to a new episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. Okay, so we spent the entire last month talking about gender, talking about men, talking about women, talking about truth, talking about all sorts of great things. And now we are pivoting away from the series because that was probably a lot for a lot of you to take back to my usual snarkiness, I think, which is a good thing because I like to get back at what I'm good at. And I don't know if I was very good at that. I thought I was at least a little bit decent at it. I heard good things from the people that actually, you know, value what I have to say, which is good. And now we are back to just the classic, you know, usual thing about, you know, psychology, how people think about things, how people like to think about things, why people are wrong about liking to think about these things this way. If this is making any fucking sense at this point, I don't know if it is, but here we go. So I was kind of tossing around this idea of, you know, why, again, why people act a certain way. And I was thinking why people act certain ways and, you know, why, the, what the motivation is behind it, what the instinct is behind it. And it's just, it's a very complicated thing for a lot of people because people are complex creatures and we don't understand what the fuck's going on with the brain half the time, most of the time, I would say anyway. So it's really kind of a lot of guesswork, to put it mildly, in terms of how to get all these things right. But I'm going to do some of that guesswork today with a lot of things that are coming you know, from my personal life in the first, you know, we'll learn about that in a second. If you guys don't, you know, care about my personal life, feel free to shut the podcast off. I don't give a shit. But if you would like to hear about kind of how this Genesis really went into the conversation that we're going into today, I think it's at least worth looking into. I've talked about a lot of these themes before, but I've never talked about it in this context before. So I want to do this as kind of more of an experimental post than anything. It turned out to be pretty, you know, interesting when you looked into it and kind of saw everything. It's not really, a, you know, a science. It's much more of a art, I would say, looking into the, the brain and people, how people think, why people think these things, everything like that. So anyways, my meandering, rambling aside, let's get into it. So Aristotle once said that all bad things come out of dating app algorithms. He was a wise man and we should all have heeded his warning. I'm not sure what comfort, if any at all, any of you get from me telling you almost literally every single failure I've ever had over a dating app and the hellish algorithms that guide them to my emotional harm. It's my fault for using them in the first place. They're my problems. It's not the algorithm's fault. It's mine. However, emotions can be tricky things, I think, and looks can be deceiving. You find out both very quickly in this bizarre world in which we all willingly immerse ourselves. I saw Andrew Schultz film his new comedy special at the Paramount Theater in downtown Austin in late September of last year. I had an extra ticket and went with a friend. Before we drove over, I went over to his apartment, and he lives in the same complex as me, actually, so it made it quite convenient, and chilled with him and his roommate while, swiping while watching football. We shot the shit and talked, per usual, and I casually swiped my then-active hinge Rolodex. I matched with a girl that Sunday afternoon. This is nothing new, even though I'm far from popular on such devices, in my opinion. But I couldn't help but sense that this one was different. Like, the fact that I was actually attracted to this girl. Like, really attracted to this girl. She was quite pretty. She also, thankfully, was not a bored. She was intelligent, actually. She turned out to be funny. She believed a lot of things I believed and liked a lot of the things that I liked. And knowing that I was arguably about to see the funniest man in modern comedy in an hour, I needed to shoot my shot. And I did, and I did it by asking her out to Marg's, my favorite place in South Austin, and remarkably, she said yes. I was over the moon. 
I drove down to the theater high as a kite. Not re really. I, I don't do the drugs and all that stuff. Got a little more high on alcohol during the show and proceeded to blow my dopamine levels through the roof when Schultz and his crew came out and destroyed the audience with laughter. It was overall a very, very great night. I went out to get margaritas with the girl two days afterwards. Remarkably, it went very well. How it usually goes is that when something like this happens, most of it is a ruse. It's easy to fall into this trap in the fake digital world that we all willingly enslave ourselves to these days. But she wasn't. Her dating app profile and real-life profile were incredibly similar. There were almost no gaps. And, most amazing of all, she seemed to think of the same of me. I finally I thought I'd hit it out of the park. This was it. We hung out later that week on a Sunday. She came over to my apartment to watch football. I showed her UFC fights in ESPN+. I started to almost let my indomitable guard down, a testament to how confident I felt that this was my future wife. It had to be, obviously. We had a first good date off a dating app. That's about as good of an indicator as I could have gotten, I assumed. Nothing romantic had happened after either of the first two dates, which was fine by me. I wanted to do this one right, particularly after all the positive signs I had gotten from her. Which made the text I got from her the following Tuesday all the more shocking. After she left that Sunday night and before that fateful Tuesday, I began to notice a trend that I had seen all too often with some of my hinge messages and matches. The text message frequency had gone down. I'm not some psychopath that needs to text the girl he's talking to every 30 seconds by any stretch of the imagination. But when the messages start to go from something like 5 per hour to 1 per day, that's a cause for concern. It's akin to the altimeter going out on a plane. You know a crash is coming even if you don't want to believe the gauge. The nuke dropped when I was getting gassed that night. In a long text, she gently and softly shattered my confidence by telling me that she was abruptly cutting off any further romantic interest. I was caught completely off guard. What did I do wrong? Why didn't I see this coming? I simply couldn't comprehend it. Most painfully, she didn't really give me a straight answer as to why, either. I let it go for about a week. I'll get over it, I thought. But I didn't. I couldn't shake the feeling that if I just tried harder, just pressed a little more, that she would see that I was worth it. That she would see I was the man of her dreams or whatever. So I did, and I thought I had a reasonable excuse to do so. My birthday was coming up the next week, and I wanted to get a steak in my favorite place downtown. This girl's a native Texan. It's in her DNA to like steak. So, naturally, I asked her if she wanted to come with me. And if she said no, I asked her for a firm reason as to why, to make sure that I didn't come off as some sim something similar to a pre-eat-your-heart-out-Jeffrey-Dahmer type. She curved me nicely once again. I thought that she would before, because why would she suddenly change when I thirstily messaged her again? It was nothing but my own delusion feeding the case anyways. I couldn't be mad at it. But there was one thing that I found angering. It wasn't that she curved me. It was her reasoning that struck me. It was one that I had never heard before, hadn't had to give her points for creativity, in my six years of dating app usage. It was one that, frankly, I never thought I would personally hear. When asked about why she didn't want to continue seeing me, her answer was this, quote, I didn't deserve you, end quote. This, on its face, is a bullshit answer. It's a bullshit answer for anyone to give. But not to her, and not to the people that say this to anyone. I was too good for her, apparently. She had problems. She couldn't be redeemed. But don't we all? I thought we did. This answer stuck with me for another week afterwards. It eventually got to be so nagging that I asked a work colleague to Zoom about it. And, you know, normally this would be a bizarre thing to slide in the Slack DMs with. But this colleague and friend of mine was different. When we were on the same team in our entry-level positions together, she virtually pulled me aside to one day and told me that I need to take my foot off the gas. I've been told that I come off as intimidating due to my overall intense demeanor, and that was causing alienation over some of my teammates. I've been told this before. It's happened in almost every scenario where competition has taken place in my life. I tend to dominate the room, or virtual room in this case. On this Zoom call, I asked her if there was something wrong with me, and to my shock, she told me that she, there wasn't. I was confused about this and asked her to elaborate, and her answer was both accurate and simple. No one can tell you what you deserve. Who is this girl to tell me what type of girl that I should associate myself with romantically? Who is anyone to tell another person anything, particularly when they don't really know that person in the first place? Group identity, in this case being in the form of men and women, is both in incredibly detrimental and toxic when disseminated to the individual level. And, as we saw the whole month of January with the Critical Gender series, we all know very well now that men and women are both incredibly flawed demographics. 
The simple fact of the matter is that no one, no matter how stereotypical, should be stereotyped to that of a broader identity. Human beings are too complex and too precious to be, subject, to be subjected to that. Anything that feeds the beast should immediately be condemned. A funny thing happened when this woman told me that she didn't deserve me. I wanted to believe her. I wanted to believe that I didn't deserve her. I wanted to say that I was better than her. I wanted some sort of genesis and reasoning to back up and validate the fact that I gotten curved again by another empty hinge match that was never going to go anywhere in the first place. But, like all the others before, it left much to be desired. The validation never came, because I never gave myself the opportunity to give in to it. But I wanted to. Very badly, in fact. But I didn't, because to do so would have been a lie. The reality is that I'm no better than anyone. No one is better than anyone. We're all people. People are of equal value, no matter who they are, what they look like, or what they believe, tinder catfishers and serial rapists aside. To assume that you're better than someone because of some arbitrary quality is an act of totalic narcissism. Only a raging self-assession could dare back up such a claim. But there is a popular trend going on right now in our culture where this mindset is not only adopted, but encouraged. The tactic that I denied using would have probably alleviated a lot of people's suffering, particularly in an instance as emotionally crushing and taxing as that one. A lot of people could have probably used that boost to lie to themselves and say that they were better than some girl who acted like a bitch on Hinge or a dude who acted like a cock on Bumble. That they need to, quote, hold themselves to a higher standard. That they, quote, deserve better. No, you, you, you don't. None of us do. You don't deserve anything. Like, literally nothing. At all. The notion that you do is bizarre at best and extremely harmful at worst. The people that adopt this mindset, mostly young, impressionable, and affluent, believe that they are owed things ranging from attention to respect to romance to everything in between. They cannot reason why. They just know that they are owed them, and owe them in great quantities. These people, myself certainly included, have no right to, quote, deserve things for the simple fact that we have no right to deserve anything. This is a misguided mindset. It is crippling many people for the same reason that it is indirectly forcing them to undercut themselves on the very front that they feel they are deserving of. This concept is especially weird in an environment where everything is more convenient than it's ever been. All the technological advancements in the world, everything being so accessible, success coming so easily for so many in so many different avenues, and yet you have the nerve to say that you can take more of it? I think not. There's something severely wrong here. This is why the abundance mindset, popularized by good-natured people such as Brene Brown, is such bullshit. Its root is not in things like gratitude and value, but rather in conceit and narcissism. It's excessive. It's after something in excess when there's nothing to be had to build the excess off of. And, as we should all know by now, more than fucking two years into this blog thing, if you didn't catch on yet, excess is bad. It's time for another reminder as to why. And to give us this reminder, we need to figure out where this feeling comes from, why it's so easy to adopt, and why adopting the opposite is counterintuitive, but better. So, strap your narcissism in, because this one's gonna hurt like a motherfucker. I've had enough. It's never good when someone starts off talking with this three-letter nuclear bomb, or three-word nuclear bomb of a sentence. And it's even worse when that person happens to be Tim Dillon. In January of 2021, the thing, the thing that Tim Dillon had, quote, had enough of was the phenomenon of so-called, quote, COVID survivors. We can all remember this absurd period if we didn't white it out completely from our brains. Yes, it was that horrible. Remember that time period where everyone was a hero? Where we all were? Where the beer virus was tearing through our society like a bull through a china shop wrecking everything in its path? Well, if you do remember that, it's because you survived. Yes, you heard that right. You're a survivor. You made it through a pandemic from a mildly infectious and hardly deadly disease, particularly if you're around the age I am, which is 24. You got through the fire and now are beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You did it. You've made it. You survived. But at the base of our spinal cords, we all knew that this assertion was absolutely fucking ridiculous. Surviving the beer virus isn't a big deal, because most people survive it. Unless you're actually at a risk of dying, dying of the shit, this should be the standard. But per usual in the time we live in, relentless opportunists took advantage of this and made an elitist subcategory of it, with themselves as the primary beneficiaries. You didn't just get better from COVID. You, quote, survived it. But you don't, quote, survive COVID. You survived if your ship got raided by Vikings a thousand years ago. 
you survived your plane crash and you, and you didn't get your body broken in half and the girl Denzel was fucking in flight. You survive if you go through the horrific DE&I compliance training courses at your local Silicon Valley tech company. These are things with actual hardship involved. There is suffering attached to them for, that lingers for years afterwards. Recovering from COVID-19 is not one of these things. Tim Dillon, whose job as a comedian is to point out the obvious absurdity of such things, unleashed a rant for the ages on this subcategory of people. He used Cobra Kai analogies to describe the way his snobbish Hollywood associates made people move. He yelled and screamed for nearly 11 minutes of over-the-top exaggeration. He called people who survived Lou Gehrig's disease pussies. He made his poor producer Ben pull up and recite the symptoms of leprosy. He would later dress up as the COVID molecule in a sketch where he mocked Bill Gates and the pharmaceutical companies at Bankroll's foundation. This usual mania was set to an 11 out of 10. But this is not without purpose, because no good comedy ever is. Good comedy is meant to be insightful and show us the proper way forward. Good comedy is meant to steer us away from the real overcorrection with a less dangerous and more funny overcorrection. Tim Dillon might be a raging maniac, but he's also an incredibly intelligent maniac. You couldn't grow up as a child watching Infowars and go on to sell subprime mortgages without being one, in my estimation. And this is why the rant was so popular. A couple of months ago, I did a post about entitlement within American society. Like Rick James once said about crack, it's a hell of a drug. Entitlement is so easy to infect your psyche because it automatically affirms you. It assumes and persuades you that you need to have things come to you simply for the fact that they should or, in the context of this post, that you, quote, deserve it. Dylan's rant attacked exactly this. If people had that same logic with surviving COVID, why wouldn't they keep that energy if they got ALS or leprosy? The answer? Because no one wants to get ALS or leprosy. They're horrible diseases, even Jesus admitted as such. To immediately assume that you, quote, deserve something is a flawed notion because the people who say this immediately turn the other cheek when something inconvenient can make the same argument. Two weeks after that post was released, I wrote another post surrounding another popular topic of our current cultural moment. Expectations. The conundrum, but um ching, examined in this post was that of whether to have high expectations or low expectations, particularly in the domains of our relationships with other people. I came to the conclusion that you owe it to yourself, should you be of this caliber of person in the first place, that high expectations are the way to go. If you're a high-quality person, you deserve high-quality treatment in your relationships. Reciprocity is the key here. Even though I thought the post on expectations was good, I have a more definitive reason as to why when looking at this in hindsight. That reason is that most of our expectations are a direct symptom of our entitlement. You should have high expectations for your relationships, but only if you have high expectations for yourself. You cannot trade something for nothing. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Anything with a functioning human brain could see through this and immediately dispel you as a serious person, much as someone desirable to pursue a relationship with. Expecting, expecting something ugh, and being entitled to something are two very different things. Expecting something means that there was investment beforehand. You expect to close a sale because you have likely put in the work in order to achieve a customer forking over money. You expect your husband to eat you out once a week because you do things to show affection towards him. But the second that you drop your investment, either in your sales cycle or in your wifely affection, the second expectations soon become entitlement. And the second that happens, the second your mind begins to become poisoned and warped. Expectation and entitlement have begun to merge. The conflation of these two things has begun to seep into the walls of our individual lives and the institutions that marry them to all of our peril. This is a very costly thing to do en masse. The most affected group, as per my mention earlier, are young people. Most of the young people in our society, that being hopefully and usually anyone under 30-ish, have been extremely coddled throughout the duration of our lives. Hardship has been removed in most cases. Even though COVID has been a trying time, it would be an outright falsehood to claim that other generations that have, better have been better equipped to deal with it than we were. Did we fumble the bag in doing so? Absolutely. But do we have the best chance? Absolutely times two. Here's an example. I live in Austin, Texas. Before that, I lived in Ohio and Boston for the majority of my life. Ohio and Boston are colder than Texas. They're much colder than Texas in the winter. Texas has gotten used to it being either hot or warm all of the time. 
Ohio and Boston have been used to all sorts of temperatures throughout their existence as living places in the Midwest and the, and the Northeast. They're prepared for anything and everything to happen because they have to be prepared for anything and everything to happen. But as per life happening, extraneous situations and outliers do indeed happen. And last week was one of those exceptions. A winter storm ran roughshod over the United States last week, absolutely blitzing America in frigid temperatures in most places across the country. My parents, luckily, were in Florida when it happened. When I FaceTimed a friend last week, he had said that the roads had over an inch of ice over top of them, along with 18 inches of snow on top of that. However, this being Ohio, the roads were taken care of quite swiftly. People could still drive and society could still function. Texas, bizarrely enough, got winter weather too, mostly in the form of black ice. It got to a low of 8 degrees with wind chill, which is pretty damn cold for it being down here. But I really didn't care. I had work to do. I had to work out. So I simply warmed up my car and drove to my boxing gym. The roads weren't salted and I slipped all over the place, but I made it. I was the only one other than my trainers to show up. I went in, punched things for 45 minutes, and left, and I didn't think much of it. But I noticed something interesting as I was driving home. If you weren't aware, Austin is kind of a popular city. A relatively small number of people are moving here. People bitch about the traffic and the gentrification all the time. The city never sleeps and hardly slows, ever slows down. But on my drive back, it did. I got several notifications on my phone that restaurants are closing down because of the, quote, adverse weather conditions. The office in my fully functional and heated apartment building had to be closed for the same reasons. People in my work, all of whom are still virtual, had trouble concentrating. This absolutely stunned me. I grew up in a childhood where we occasionally had up to three feet of snow dumped onto us at a time. Temperatures had hit up to negative 66 once in my college. I had a broken window in Boston that made my room flood with negative degree weather for three straight months. So, I asked myself, why on earth would people shut down over something not nearly as bad? Because they're entitled to something else. Just as Texans are entitled to sunshine and warm weather, other people have been entitled thing and become entitled to things such as being, quote, owed to them. My mom was telling me about kids at the bus stop in the freezing weather that had to wait in sub-zero temperatures to catch the bus. Yet the people down in Texas didn't learn their lesson after Snowvid, so they had to repeat the same mistake and nonsense over and over again. When everything becomes comfortable and easy and safe, it is very easy to feel like you should be deserving. Those common things that people don't have to deal with can seem so ingrained in your soul that you conveniently forget that they're not a part of you at all. They're just things. They're just there. When this attitude is adopted into the mainstream narrative, people begin to realize that and shun hard that they can shun and try to shun hardship. Reciprocity becomes non-existent in both the good and the bad. The entitlement begins to overtake the expectations for the simple reason that no one expects anything anymore. These people fail to realize many things, but the most obvious and most sad is that, no matter how they spin it, hardship can provide numerous benefits. Hardship, going to the core nature of the world, of the word, I should say, excuse me, hardens you. It makes you tougher. It can callous your mind and dense in your soul. All of these benefits go out of the way when entitlement replaces expectation in the hierarchy of needs. Human beings are wired to take the path of least resistance on a lot of things. We take the shortest route to go to a restaurant. We want our children just to get the fucking answers right on their order of operations homework. We want to make our arguments with our wives last a short amount of time. These are all reasonable requests to demand from yourself and from others. But this case is different. Remember, reciprocity is the key. In this case, you won't do just little. You'll simply do nothing at all. All these people who embody the, quote, deserving attitude and the entitlement that naturally accompanies it are simply bring, being themselves and waiting. They don't have to change. They don't have to struggle. They don't have to attempt to get better. They just have to be themselves, no matter how flawed that self is. However, this is far from the case. You don't deserve anything. You don't get to be entitled. You don't get to improve. Or, at least you don't get to improve and still get things of high and corresponding value. There must be a one-to-one -one correlation or the math doesn't work. Everything begins to fall out of order. Most likely, people will begin to recognize this before you do. But, again, this is an easy mindset to adopt for so many people because it seduces you. 
it's almost effortless to fall into its clutches. And here's why. Most families you hear of in the United States are known for a particular reason. America has no royal family, so we adopt them instead. The Bidens, the Bushes, the Clintons, the McCains, the Trumps, the Kardashians, the D'Amelios, the Mannings, the Scots. These people are all known for one thing, whether it be business, entertainment, politics, whatever the fuck. But assess the value of the families themselves. Are all of them noteworthy? The answer to that would be a resounding no. The vast majority of them are completely and utterly irrelevant for the most part. Sure, some parts of the family can be loud or obnoxious, but so can a lot of people and a lot of things. Do not confuse noise with relevance. They're hardly ever the same thing. But there is one particular family that, I would argue, has had more influence than all of the above, particularly recently. It has affected far more people in a far harsher way than even those of people who have become presidents. Sure, they may theoretically have control of an over a nation of 340 million people. But, again, do they really? It's very rare that someone, even in that prestigious of a position, would stoop to an individual level where real influence can be done to a person. The Sackler family is the rare expectation to that rule. The Sackler family is far more influential and far worse than any of the above-mentioned families. Yet, both curiously and non-curiously, they do not receive nearly the amount of attention that the rest of them do. A good reason for this is because the people in America are f more familiar with what the Sackler family did than who the Sackler family is. And what the Sackler family might did might seem astounding, but also horribly true. The Opioid Epidemic The Sackler family is a pharmaceutical dynasty that at one point headed a company called Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma struck gold in a highly competitive industry by manufacturing an opiate called Oxycontin, which was heralded by the company as a re revolutionary narcotic in the field of pain management. It was cheap and easy to manufacture. It did cure pain. But Oxycontin was something else. Incredibly addictive. But that was the point, you see. The Sackler family knew this, and Purdue Pharma knew it. But they could have let their customers know it, too. But they didn't. Instead, they chose the opposite route. They incentivized it. Employing a massive sales force to peddle a drug throughout America's medical system, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family jammed Oxycontin down the throat of every institution that would take it. They deliberately mislabeled the medication so that no one would think twice about potential side effects. They made analytical models to see who their target market was, mostly residing on the poor and trodden upon people in the middle of the country. Opiates soon began to flood neighborhoods from coast to coast, washing them in a scene of, of chemicals that no one, not even Purdue Pharma, knew how to, con knew how to con control. What happened after proceeded to devastate the country. 100,000 people died from overdoses last year. Nearly everyone in middle of America knows of someone who got hooked on a painkiller and couldn't stop using that painkiller. When their good-natured families attempted to force them to, they sent them away in disgrace. They usually got hooked on heroin afterwards, the endpoint to all opiates. If they were really unlucky, that heroin was laced with fentanyl. That's usually kills people in instances such as this. The Sackler family are monsters. They created a disease that has crippled hundreds of thousands of mostly good-natured Americans from living their lives in peace and prosperity. They've deliberately assisted in hundreds of thousands of opiate-related deaths. They took something that had a kernel of truth to it, Oxycontin being a painkiller, and blew it up all over the world. Their consequences will, were soon very well documented by several people. They've been fined way too little by the government. Most remarkably of all, they are still allowed to operate as a business. They're still drug dealers. However, instead of correcting the problem that they knew existed from the jump, they pimped it out to make a lot of money. They knew perfectly well what Oxy did to people when it started to be consumed, particularly among the vulnerable and the weak. They just didn't care. They didn't care about the pain, the sacrifice, and the suffering. They only cared about money. Them doing so left the vast majority of deepest held customer, their deepest held customer base addicted, broken, destitute, and hollowed out. 
their impacts in the broader American culture continue to raise or rage, and it will be felt forever. What would compel the Sackler family and other people that deliberately take advantage of people knowing that it will harm them to do this? The answer, obviously, is entitlement. They, quote, deserve it. It's capitalism, right? Just sell a lot of a great product that does some things right and the market will reward you. Correct? It is correct. But it doesn't make it right. These types of bullshit excuses are out there for everyone to see if you know where to look for them and see who all says them. In fact, you don't even have to really look because the impulse is inside all of us. It's a duality of man and action. Human nature is naturally imperfect. I do not believe that people are born inherently with good intentions. Because when you think about it, how can we be? Because human beings are literally born helpless. We rely on everyone to survive from an early age. Everything is catered to us. We leech off people without providing any value in return. Entitlement is baked into the human cake whether we realize it or not. We have to tame the selfishness and the narcissism out of us by force. For the longest time, humans really didn't have a way to do this. Religion helped, but it wasn't perfect. Ask the millions of dead bodies in the Crusades, they'll tell you. But there was another thing that became more attractive than religion, particularly when the word got more secular in the late 1800s, the world, excuse me, got more secular in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's an idea that was so powerful that it's got even more popularity today. Almost everyone practices it in some way or another, whether they want to admit it or not. An idea that can be appealing to everyone, but at the same time be individualistic enough where that person still feels in control of it. Self-improvement. We went over this trend in our post that honed in on the duality of man, but self-improvement became the god value of most people's eyes as soon as the world began to turn on its head. When Friedrich Nietzsche originally came up with the idea when wasting away in a German mountain, he, correctly, thought it was a bad one. Thus spoke of Zarathustra, his popular work that first canonized the idea, was not intended to be a serious attempt at making a new god value. It was meant to be a warning. Nietzsche saw what was going on in the world and was terrified of it. The reason that people in the ancient times invented the concepts of gods and religion was to make sense of the unsensible. Why does it rain outside? Why do I feel bad when I hit my wife? Why do good and bad things happen? In the early stages of modern development before philosophy and science were invented, people could not come with, quote, logical answers. So they simply decided to create them. But this had a condition to it that had to be met with in every instance. The only way a various god or goddess within a religious structure could work is by the person worshipping that religion to willingly submit to it. Christians submit to the words of Jesus Christ. Jews submit to the Torah, the word of God before the time of Jesus. Buddhists submit to the scriptures surrounding the Buddha. Muslims submit to the ancient writings of Muhammad and the Quran. Young teenage women submit to literally every word that falls out of Addison Ray's mouth and or vagina. These are how these things work. These are their gods and goddesses. And to give ourselves credit, they worked. They worked really well. We were able to flourish largely among our subservience to these gods and goddesses. They made everything simpler. A good thing happened? Awesome. Thank your specific god. A bad thing happened? That sucks. Work harder to make your god happy so that shit doesn't happen to you again. There was far less, complex far less complexity and far more happiness simply because we realized that the world was largely out of our control. So, when Nietzsche began to observe this trend, he was horrified. He, perhaps more than anyone else in the history of modern philosophy, knew humanity's prevalence for fucking things up. We can be incredible, but we can't be gods. Zarathustra's, Zarathustra's death of God in Nietzsche's famous parable was meant to be a cry for help. When you subvert any god, you automatically have to elevate something to fill that top position in the value hierarchy. It's how humans are wired. And, again correctly, there is nothing within the realm of humanity, no matter what beliefs your, your beliefs in this domain may be, that can adequately cover for a god. Everything will get exposed at some point. You cannot hide from it. It will always find you. But it was too late. The idea was too tempting. Control is a very powerful concept. When someone feels like they can seize more of it, they usually do. They rarely give it up afterwards. Ask Hitler, Nietzsche was one of his heroes. 
It's what's making a lot of the beer virus period in human history so incredibly scary. People are giving away everything to people who only desire that everything. They clearly don't know what to do with it. They haven't done anything constructive with it, at least so far. The deed, however, was done. The next person in the chronology to popularize and inject the self-help improvement model into our culture was a man named Napoleon Hill, who authored Think and Grow Rich. Napoleon Hill, unlike Nietzsche, saw it as an opportunity. If people could be empowered just a little bit more, maybe they could do something with their lives. Maybe they could be successful. Maybe they could get somewhere. And Hill turned out to be right. His book changed the world and a lot of the way people look at life. It's one of the most influential books in the modern American literature canon for the simple reason that he opened a Pandora's box of possibilities for, t- for all people. He threw limits to the window and encouraged people to look beyond them. In a lot of ways, he should be commended for that. Too many people have limiting beliefs in the world, even though a lot of what Hill put in the book, at least in my opinion, is hot fucking garbage. He deserves a lot of credit for well looking where no one else has had the nerve to look. Why go into all of this? Why rehash a sentiment that I've pushed for an incredibly long time on this forum and others? Well, for starters, I think it's an important point to bring up. These two men played an important role in society. But for this discussion, I think a more important question to ask is, why? Why was it important? Why did people automatically become attracted to what Hill and Nietzsche had to say? To that question, my answer would be this. They both know the entraps of entitlement. Even though they were both flawed, particularly Hill, who many credibly believe was more of a con man than anything else, these two men understood greater than anyone else the danger of entitlement creep. Self-improvement is in direct contrast with entitlement. They contradict one another. They cannot be in the same space. They are the yin to one another's yang. However, there is a reason why people knew Hill's book and not Nietzsche's book, even though I and many others would argue that Nietzsche's is far better and more important. And the reason is because it's positive. It's all sunshine and rainbows. He talks about manifesting and achieving your dreams. This is, naturally, more appealing to his audience, which is mostly young people with their whole lives ahead of them who probably don't want to fuck them up if they can help it. But as we all should know by now, mindless positivity sucks. It's never as good as it says it is because almost nothing is all good all the time. But people like to be optimistic, so they sway more towards the opinions of Napoleon Hill. Nietzsche, by contrast, talked about darkness. He talked about things being bad and bad things happening in the darkness that resides in all of our minds. These are not nearly as positive as what Hill talked about. But as we all should know by now, part two, this is where the growth comes for most of us. We don't grow through experiencing sunshine and rainbows. We grow by experiencing cold, harsh, and unforgiving suffering. Nietzsche knew this and so did Hill. That is why one book sold 40 copies and others sold millions. Hill not only popularized self-help, he corrupted it. The powerful thing that Napoleon Hill and the legions of his followers flooded the industry after him realized was that this was their pathway into people's minds. Ideas are the most powerful thing that one can possess. Hill cracked the matrix by realizing that this was an easy way to create a digestible product for people to consume. As a consequence, he and others began to pervert it using capitalism. They made an entire industry out of one half-truth, one that was so powerful that it allowed them to completely dominate and oversaturate a market that was only partially accurate and helpful. This methodology certainly sounds better than Nietzsche's. It sounds more attractive. It's the quick fix. So, naturally, people have locked their heads into doing things this way. They've corrupted themselves by the same logic. Instead of heeding the explicit warnings of Nietzsche and only buying into the good half of what Napoleon Hill said, they've cheated themselves out of the real lessons that these offerings were supposed to provide. They've collided head-on with entitlement and all the vices that come with it. Something funny happens when you become dogmatic toward a certain way of doing things. You become so entranced by your false sense of security that you lose perspective on what the end goal actually is. You don't think that there is another way. More importantly, you don't feel that there is a better way. You're always more comfortable when you feel like things should be owed to you. That you don't have to do anything to, quote, deserve things. That reciprocity isn't necessary. But all of these things are wrong. They are false idols designed by your mind for you to take your eyes off the ball. Sometimes, a counterintuitive approach is the best way. And that counterintuitive approach was best displayed by a counterintuitive source, one that I never thought that I would cite. 
The Simpsons is a shitty show. I'm sure it used to be good, but it's not for now. That's what happens when you try to keep stringing the same idea out for an overwhelmingly long amount of time. That's how we get things like our crumbling national infrastructure and a 100-year-old Madonna posing in lingerie on a bed. Both things are immense threats to our national security and interest. Everything like them must be stopped immediately. An overhaul isn't just desirable. It's necessary. Comedian Akash Singh, however, was able to extract a remarkable point of value from The Simpsons. Singh, the co-host of Flagrant 2 alongside his, his and our friend Andrew Schultz, released his debut comedy special, Bring Back a Poo, last week on his YouTube channel. Singh is a genuinely funny comedian, and the special is currently ripping up the charts on YouTube. It's almost up to a million views less than a week after its release. It's very rare that you see an Indian comedian. I personally never heard of one until I started tuning into Flagrant 2 and realized how funny Akash Singh truly was. Singh, being one of the only truly funny comedians in the space like Tim Dillon we mentioned before, is currently waging a war against cancellation and political correctness. Him being an Indian man in comedy has led to some challenges, according to him. He got made fun of. He was bullied. He didn't feel like he belonged, much like a lot of young Indian people do. But according to him, being fun of doesn't mean that you're oppressed. Being bullied doesn't make you a victim. Not feeling like you don't belong doesn't mean society is out to get you. You can disprove all of those things by being a productive member of society and contributing to help other people with issues and ailments. You can be a part of the solution instead of adding to the problem. Akash Singh understands this. What made his new special so brilliantly funny is that he dropped the nuke on cancel culture and political correctness not by tearing anyone down, but by lifting his own people up. The whole point of his bits was to say that Indian people blow the vast majority of people out of the water at anything important. And he's right. Indian Americans do better at school and consequently get better jobs at a college. In fact, they do so well that they are actively getting discriminated against by Ivy League colleges. Their family units are much more attacked, intact and can go on for years. What Singh took issue with was the Indians American, Indian Americans of his generation, mostly the children of Indian immigrants, joining the woke circus and complaining about things that they had no right to complain about. When they do this, especially when contrasted against the struggles of their parents that came before them, they look like what all members of the mob eventually look like. Childish, foolish, and stupid. Minorities have to work really hard, he said. No one owes you a fucking thing. You have to go out and get it yourself. No one makes it alone. But no one makes it without trying, either. Pretending or acting otherwise is cheating yourself and all the people that believe in you. The best things in life aren't free. They have to be paid for with effort. It's never easy to go against the grain and do something others would consider weird, especially when the easiness is baked into what you're going against. But I would argue that it's always worth it, particularly when juxtaposed to the quote, I deserve something mindset. The reasoning behind it is something that we've been dancing around the entire post, but needs to be brought to the forefront to close it. Control. Think about it for a second. Human beings like things to be stable and easily consumable. Therefore, thinking that you deserve things, which stems from entitlement, is the easiest option to take. It's the default of human nature, the path of least resistance in action. Settling into this idea, in theory, gives you a lot of control over what you think is going to happen to you. But it doesn't mean that that assumption is right. It actually does the opposite. It robs you of control. Again, think about it. You're just the recipient. You have nothing to do with the genesis of what the receipt ends up being. Therefore, you automatically put yourself in a position of toxic victimhood. Nothing is ever your fault because, according to this logic, nothing can ever be your fault. Ownership is everything, as we've talked about before. Being involved in the active mining of value through effort and reciprocity is the only sure way to make sure that your investments you make in your life go unwasted. You might fuck up and occasionally fail on something. But at least you had the experience and hopefully learned something. When there is no effort from your side that instigates an act of participation, this, obviously, cannot take place. When you shun the entitlement and the false sense of deserving, you gain control over what you might be able to do. This still does not guarantee anything, but it can put you in a better position to capitalize on being a part of getting there. There are far few, there are far few possible things you can control, so getting your hands on as many of them as possible to steer them in a positive direction is about as desirable of an outcome as you can hope for. 
On that point, allowing you to control your effort allows you to control over not just your effort, but your ability to ramp up and down that effort. This is based on your values. As we've mentioned countless times over this forum before, your values are the bedrock of every decision and major influence of your life that you have, including your entitlement and the attitudes that come with it. Knowing a better version of them inside is the key in order to gain, garner control over them. Our values, however, are not static. They are, the, they are the opposite. Our values, should they be good values, require constant examination. Considering that our values, whether you want to admit it or not, guide everything and every decision that we deem important throughout our lives, this is absolutely necessary. We find out that we're wrong all the time. And if we do not correct what is wrong when it pertains to the things that get most guide our lives, that is a very large problem indeed. This act of examination also requires a lot of effort. Most, more importantly, it requires self-awareness. Without self-awareness, where would any of this get us? You wouldn't change anything because you would be so frightened by your own bullshit perception of yourself that you would refuse to go there. Most people, myself included, are afraid to do this, at least most of the time. It's a very hard thing to dig that deep into yourself only to realize you were completely wrong about who you were in your entirety. But the reason that it's worth doing it anyway is simple. The effort to undergo this process is always worth it over the deserving entitlement route because you will know what you actually earned is much better than thinking about what you could deserve. One is a gain, the other is simply a wish. Lots of people wish for things. They hardly get them. Few people actually put the effort into attempt to gain something of higher value. Few people actually get that thing of higher value. But all those people get something out of the process of trying, should they actually choose to try and see it. We all require models in order to properly exhibit behaviors. The two most common ones to avoid the trap of entitlement are those of Napoleon Hill and Friedrich Nietzsche, the two men we discussed earlier. Both were instrumental in the new religion that could divert from the so-called old and outdated ways, but only one, Hill, has widespread popularity. His life's work was to completely reinvent the perception of who people thought they were. He was incredibly accurate in his assumption and equally as effective in his delivery. But just because something embodies those two qualities does not mean that it is right. Going with the crowd is not always the best option. Just ask Douglas Murray, he'll tell you. The Nietzschean model of self-improvement, I would argue, is the better aspect to focus on. It will be more productive to your overall development, not just the parts of yourself that you're comfortable looking at. In his words, you need to look at the abyss so the abyss can also look back into you. Nietzsche's model allows you to see the negatives. It allows you a gateway into your dark side. It shows the other side of every story. This allows you to work on your duality the part of themselves that everyone has but most are afraid to accept and look at. More importantly, it allows you to attempt to tame it and use it to your advantage. It allows you to actually get better instead of merely thinking about getting that better. When properly harnessed, this is an incredibly effective strategy to get the most out of improving your personality in a constructive fashion. No one likes looking at where they're fucked up. It's why the term, quote, fucked up is used when describing it. It's uncomfortable. It probably won't get you a lot of clout in your video sharing platform and or metaverse of your choice. However, what it will give you is far more valuable. Levity. Adopting the Nietzschean model gives you a sense of self because you will actually know your whole self. That saying is popular in HR departments nowadays. They should be encouraging this. It will give you a sense of calm because you will no longer fear what you don't understand. Because you understand all of it now. It will give you a sense of gratitude, because you know that things could be so much worse. You know that you're still a somewhat irredeemable and fucked up person, but you're more okay with it now than you used to be. A mindset of greed, the mindset of the deserving mindset, is not a good mindset at all. Too many people are beginning to possess it. Should you want to avoid all the traps, it's best to shun it before it shuns you. Come to think about it, the title of this post is wrong. Maybe you do deserve one thing. You deserve the opportunity to get something. But you still don't deserve anything. No one does. 
Anyone who embodies the mindset of entitlement is both drugging and fooling themselves into thinking that they're better than others by doing nothing. This is wrong. This is a manifestation of pure narcissism and must be avoided. The way to gain things in life is through the mindset of effort and reciprocity, not waiting in selfishness. You could potentially get rewarded occasionally, but that potentially is a very slim indeed. Although I'm sure Friedrich Nietzsche got rewarded for having the greatest mustache in human history. Maybe we could try that route instead, but that's a mindset of entitlement if I've ever seen one. Alrighty, guys. That is the podcast for this week. I thought that was interesting, if nothing else. I hope you guys thought so, too. Uh, we have a great podcast, the great guest coming out next week. I'm super excited doing that interview later this week. And uh, I'm really fucking tired, if you can't notice. I was, um, I was, uh, I've had a hell of a week. I was, I was doing a lot of shit, you know, had to you know, take care of a lot of things, all that other stuff. But all good and grateful for the opportunity to do so. So until next week, guys, on the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next week. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?